just as I as I look out at you all sitting there, I'm reminded of this word, kanti, a Pali word, and I'll refer to it this afternoon more as I speak. But uh, it's kanti is that is a certain quality of a kind of uh, willingness to abide, a willingness to abide with what's happening. Sometimes it's translated as patient endurance. And if today has felt somewhat like patient endurance, or possibly even sometimes as impatient endurance, then hopefully something of this afternoon's reflections might um, give some perspective on the value of being willing to abide with what's here. I want, to, I want to speak about our practice in terms of two words which, one, which are very common in uh, the Asian Buddhist traditions where these teachings come from, but in the translation of teachings and practice uh, into particularly into Europe and uh, North America, the terms that aren't spoken about very much. Uh, I want to speak about purification and about karma. And they can both be kind of heavy-duty words. You may have a reaction when you just hear the word purification because of various associations that are there. And I will try to, as we go through, point out some of the associations and um, the, some of the baggage that can go with these words. And also point out how um, it might be helpful for us to see our practice in these terms. Um, as I say, in an Asian context, it wouldn't be at all unusual to speak of this as a practice of or as a path of purification certainly wouldn't be unusual to refer to karma. But as these, uh, as teachings and practices have gotten somewhat westernized and depending on the view, there are various different views and some the view may be that as these teachings are being adapted and uh, getting established in, uh, in our culture, this culture, Western culture, we might say, all of those are a little bit clumsy. But And then there's the, this view that the, the Dharma, the practice and teachings from the Buddhist tradition, are somehow getting settled. And that this is a very a young thing, and that there's the hope to kind of transplant the depth and the beauty and the breadth of the tradition that's there in Asia uh, here. And some might have the other view of saying, well, we did the Dharma teachings every time they've moved country or moved culture, and there's a whole history of that, uh, mostly in Asia, then teachings and practices have adapted and been uh, affect, influenced by the culture that they've gone into, as well as influencing the culture. 
and that so we're not trying to import, import some would say some kind of wholesale version of Buddhist practice from Asia to um, to here, but rather there's a wish or an attempt or a need to adapt and refine those practices. So some would say we're trying to maintain, some would say we're trying to adapt, and others would say we're just ruining them. That uh, we uh, get that uh, some accusation, the sense of, oh, the purity of these uh, it belongs somewhere else, and in the process we've left bits out or ignored bits, and we're, you know, that's usually there's something of that goes along with every tradition, the sense that it's gradually petering out and we're getting worse and worse at uh, things. The, the Pali word, word in the Buddha's language for purification is visuddhi. It comes from the word sud. Sud means pure. And I was just uh, thinking this afternoon that the way one I usually hear sud is in regards to Hindi. I speak Hindi, but I speak very dreadful Hindi. I speak... Uh, and I have friends that speak very Sud Hindi. Sud Hindi. Sud means pure Hindi or clear Hindi. And the other word that I hear Sud is about ghee. Right? Sud ghee. Sud ghee means pure ghee. ghee. And another way we usually translation for ghee in English is clarified butter. Right? Do you know that term? Those of you who uh, have some background with uh, Indian food, uh, cookery, culture, etc. Clarified butter. And so in thinking of that today, you'll see where I'm going with all of this. I thought, ah, that's a nice translation for sud, rather than just about purifying, because purifying has problematic associations of impure and of some ideal called purity. And we'll get back to that later. But this term, sudgi, clarified butter, I thought that's a nice, different translation for sud, or for visuddhi. A process of clarifying. A process of clarifying consciousness. Clarifying experience. Clarifying our understanding. Clarifying our reactivity. So I'm going to use the language of purification as I speak, but if you find, and I'll try to point out some of the problems with it, but if you find it's a bit of a heavy or laden word for you in terms of ideas of pure and impure, then please feel free to imagine like ghee and think in terms of clarifying if that's a less charged word. There are plenty of purificatory practices in um, many religious or spiritual traditions. There's uh, when in the kind of in the Christian tradition, there's the kind of purificatory practices of, um, of fasting and of silence and of wearing uncomfortable clothes, for example. That sort of old monastic discipline of wearing uh, hair shirts, you know, itchy clothes. As if one is purifying by, um, um, through a sense of penance. That's a good word. So the sense of penance and, purity and purification easily go together. Same in the Eastern tradition. 
I lived in India for five or six years and hung out a lot with um, ascetic practitioners, um, people who had taken on various penances. I knew one guy who would bury himself underground for nine days, twice a year, as a purificatory practice. Um, met, uh, and you may have seen uh, documentaries, Kumbh Mela, etc., and sadhus who sometimes uh, resolve to spend m long periods of time not lying down, for example. Mm. Or long periods of time, years, w with one hand raised in the air. And so much so that sometimes the arm becomes incapable of being taken down and will stay the whole life frozen in place. So these are the kind of penance-type practices. And as a young man, they've been, these have been going on in India for thousands of years. And as a young man, the Buddha engaged in some of those penances, right? sharing in that uh, well-established cultural view at the time that we somehow purify the spirit by torturing the body. And despite very earnestly um, practicing penances, the Buddha found he became weak and uncomfortable and didn't feel very pure. So, he was a slow learner, poor love. Right? <laughs> so it took him six years of that kind of uh, penance type practice to realize that he was giving himself a hard time, that his health was getting compromised, that his energy levels were very low, and that uh, far from leading to some kind of transcendence of this messy bodily life, it was just leading him into uh, a weakened condition of bodily life. So, and, and yet, something about the willingness to go through that hardship was helpful in terms of seeing rather directly and clearly uh, that he needed to do things differently. And there's a nice story later on in, in the Buddha's life where he meets uh, somebody practicing penances. And I think that person is actually practicing, if I remember rightly, I'm not sure, the hand, the holding the hand in the air penance. And the Buddha says to him, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm purifying my karma. And the Buddha says, oh, well, how much have you purified already? The person says, uh, I don't know. And the Buddha says, well, how much more do you have left to purify? He says, oh, I, I don't know. So the Buddha says, so, and how will you know when you have purified it all or purified enough of it? The person says, I don't know. And the Buddha says, well, you're wasting your time. <laughs> and as so often in the stories of the Buddha, the person sees the light, takes their arm down, falls at the feet of the Buddha, and uh, goes off with him. So when we're talking, when I'm speaking about purification, I'm not speaking about aiming for some kind of purity. I'm not speaking with any sense of what's here being impure. And I'm not speaking about any kind of penance. And yet, there is a, a purificatory element 
to this kind of practice. And specifically, this very somatic practice, which we've called being awake in our bones, which we're emphasizing in the sitting and in the walking and in the movement practice, right? being as close as possible to being right inside of, being intimate with the alive, vibrant immediacy of physical experience. Another way of saying that, there's a purificatory element to listening with our whole being, with our whole attention, to the way bodily life is speaking to us. Attending to the constant supply of information that's coming from bodily life. One of the ways that that has a purificatory element is that just in this kanti, this patient endurance, this willingness to abide, right, this fact that we sit here with the comings and goings of experience, that we sit here with discomfort sometimes, that we're willing to walk up and down and up and down, to walk with boredom, to walk with confusion, or to walk with restlessness, or to walk with uh, wishing we weren't walking and doing something more, something else. A willingness to abide with despite. The willingness to just to stay in some stretch or some movement and to feel the sensations that are going on. So the purificatory element of that is, in other words, the willingness to abide with what can be at times definitely uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable or emotionally uncomfortable, mentally uncomfortable. We develop qualities of heart and mind. We develop a certain spaciousness. We develop a certain non-reactivity. We, de we develop a capacity to be gentle with experience. And of course, the development of those qualities sometimes passes by, passes through the shock, maybe, or the unpleasantness of seeing the, the opposite of those qualities. We develop gentleness, not just be, it doesn't just fall from the sky, right? we develop gentleness through seeing how ungentle we can be with our experience. And seeing, oh, that doesn't help. That makes things worse. We develop spaciousness by seeing how tight we can get, how much we can contract around our experience. And slowly maybe, or suddenly maybe, learning to, daring to, Soften the contraction. And these qualities are ones that sometimes there may be moments where we really see the quality. Where we really have a moment of discovering, ah, that's what it means to be gentle with my experience instead of pushing against it. Or where we just, in a moment of relaxing or of letting go, 
a moment where we see, oh, that's what it is to have space around what's happening. So sometimes those qualities might be very clear in a particular moment. And there's also a way in which those qualities are slowly refined, slowly built up, generating an increasing and deepening capacity to be patient with our experience, to be gentle with our experience, to be spacious with our experience, to care for experience. And that that gentle refinement, which is another way of saying that purification, right? that gentle refinement of these qualities, we don't necessarily notice moment by moment. In other words, we don't necessarily notice the goodness of our practice. We can get so busy judging our practice, thinking, I should be gentle, which isn't very gentle, right? Or I ought to be spacious, which isn't very spacious, etc. Or we can get busy measuring our practice to some other moment when it was better, when we were more concentrated or more peaceful. We can spend a lot of time and energy, and you can just see for yourself, these last couple of days even, how much time and energy has gone into criticizing your practice, finding fault with your practice worrying about or berating yourself for your practice not being in some way better than it is. It's impossible for your practice to be better than it is. <laughs> right? How can something be better than it is? Your practice can only be as it is. And so that berating, that measuring, that complaining, that fault-finding serves to undermine the recognition of the goodness of your practice. The, the beautiful thing is, even though you may be undermining and criticizing yourself, and even though that's rather uncomfortable and uh, harsh, the gentle refinement, the purification, is going on anyway. It can go on much more efficiently if you, or it will go on much more efficiently as you learn increasingly to stop fault finding, to stop comparing, to stop trying to have it be better than it is, and to be increasingly content with feeling it how it is. And it's sometimes not until after the fact. So sometimes, as I say, the, the quality that's being developed really stands out in the moment. But sometimes it's not until after the fact where we're able to look back and see how that uh, gradual refinement has been happening. Very often people will come to me who uh, have quite some history and momentum of practice and, and complain about or worry about how their meditation is. That it's not concentrated enough or that it's something or other. And I encourage them often to look back 
on the history of their dreadful, not very concentrated, poor quality meditation practice. And see, over that time, never mind the quality of your meditation, because we don't actually get into this stuff to be good at meditation. Right? That's the most rubbish skill, right? to be good at meditation. Nobody can be impressed by you being good at meditation. Right? It's completely invisible. Right? You sit like this, who knows what's going on here? <laughs> right? You don't really get into this to be good at meditation. You get into this to free up our life. So you look back on the trajectory of this uh, dreadful meditation practice that you've got and see what, can you see a trajectory of what we could call purification, a trajectory of some refinement of your capacity in life to be more spacious, more gentle, less reactive, clearer about what's happening. And then the person will almost always say, oh yeah, definitely, definitely, that's why I keep doing it. Oh. And that reflecting in that way is a helpful way to let go of a little of the fault-finding and the comparing and the complaining. Something potent, something transformative, something purificatory is happening in the willingness to sit with, to inquire into, to make room for to attend to, experience. And the more we see that, the more we can allow that to happen, the more we trust our practice, the more we have a certain kind of confidence in our deepening capacity, in the deepening of those qualities. Another way that this practice in the way we're doing it is purificatory is in the way that this quality of kanti, this willingness to abide with what's happening, creates a space in our experience for... Um, for unattended to material to surface. And in focusing just quite centrally on physical experience, we notice that a lot of the ways unattended material surfaces is physically, energetically. It surfaces as heat or density or tension. And often we attribute that to the posture. And it's true that if one's sitting with one's knees folded in uh, some tight way, that might put a certain strain on the legs and knees. Particularly if we're not used to sitting in that way. And there's no need to put undue strain on legs and knees. If you're not used to sitting uh, in a way that uh, does that, then like some of you are doing wisely, sitting on a chair 
If you're frustrated with the intensity and density of pressure and tension in knees and legs, sit on a chair. Then you won't have that kind of discomfort. But you'll probably still have some discomfort. Because a lot of the discomfort in our practice isn't really related to our posture at all. We're not putting a great deal of strain on our posture by sitting around for half an hour or 40 minutes or whatever. You can sit in front of a movie for two hours. (laughs) Oh, you don't, oh, my shoulders, oh, my back. So something else is happening here that's not related to the posture. Particularly if the heat and density is in the shoulders or the neck or pressure in the head or... uh, wherever else, back, belly, etc. Because our way of um, attending to that which we find difficult is to contract around it, right? And like we were exploring yesterday in our style of reactivity to unpleasant experience. If, that's, if that which we contract around, that which has been confusing, unpleasant, shocking uh, to us, uh, all through our lives, if that continues to be unattended to, if it hasn't been met, made room for, digested, then it... Well, then we tend to hold on to that. The contractions become internalized. They, re- they become somatized. They become so much a part of who we are that in the ordinary uh, sense, we don't notice them. But if we sit down with ourselves, we sit down in a way that's undefended. If we inclining our attention in such a way that's undistracted, we start to actually make room, maybe for the first time in our life, we start to make room for the unattended to material, the compacted material, the, um, the habitual-weighted tensions. We actually give them space to move, to show up. And the heat and the density and the discomfort much of it is those is that unattended to material starting to move often one can tell that that kind of uh, what we could call meditative pain is just that that it's re- it's not to do with the posture it's not to do with a health issue it's to do with uh, the meditative process We can tell it's that, because as soon as the bell rings, it vanishes. Sometimes even before we've even changed posture, the bell rings, oh. As if if this bell had extraordinary liberating power. So I want to be clear, right? that there is some discomfort that is related to the posture. 
And there, of course, may be discomfort that you're in that is very directly related to some health condition or some injury that you may have sustained. And if that's the case, it's very important to take care of uh, your own physical and health and body situation in the way that you know you need to do. And that may involve uh, sitting in a certain way or needing to lie or, have it, or the needing to change posture rather frequently, etc. And if that's what you need to do to take care of a, some kind of chronic uh, pain condition or an injury, or etc., the very clear encouragement, of course, to do that. And, as we say, to look and see if, if, the, if the discomfort that you're in is there during meditation, but not... You know, one might be sitting on a chair meditating, terrible pain and discomfort, sense that it's to do with something, and yet then when we're sitting in a chair eating lunch as well, but it's completely gone. All that dreadful tension between the shoulder blades just doesn't appear when there's soup in front of us. When I was in the monastery in Thailand, one of the chants that we used to ch- chant every evening had this uh, lovely line in it. Kanti paramang tapotitika ittang paramang sarana mutamang. I shouldn't have even started. I think I got that uh, horribly wrong. Especially knowing that it's being recorded, I shouldn't have started. So I'll stick with the English translation. Kanti paramang Patient endurance burns up defilements supremely. And even though there's a lot of heavy-duty words in there, especially defilements, which again can have these associations of impurity in some ways, which aren't particularly helpful for us. But that sense of kanti, this quality of a willingness to abide with what's here, particularly when what's here is unpleasant or dense or hot, that it has this purificatory power, this refining power, that over time those things start to burn up and free up and give us access to what we have been speaking about earlier as this, the basic ease and pleasantness and relief of just hanging out in the basic physical experience called being here. And we can't rush that. We can't kind of, uh, you know, get through to the other side of that quickly. Patient endurance. Willingness to abide with. And sometimes, of course, that, that quality of kanti isn't available anymore. Sometimes the discomfort, even if one may know, well, it's just meditative pain, it's not related to the posture, it's something that I'm... But it just feels too intense. I've lost the perspective, I've lost the spaciousness, I've lost the patience, I can't stand it anymore. Then, of course, it's just wise, skillful to move. Stand up. Open your eyes. Change your posture. 
Kanti is not a quality of gritting your teeth and hanging in there, come what may, because I'm going to sit still until the bell rings. If you're just if you're just gonna sit still until the bell rings, you're not cultivating <laughs> patient endurance. Right? You're cultivating bloody mindedness. So in both of those two things, both of those two elements though. There's something um, relaxing, reassuring right? about the, the, the increasing recognition that abiding with my experience frees it up. It's developing these qualities. And it's giving unattended to material an opportunity to show up and be met and be digested. Sometimes, when that unattended to material shows up, there may be feelings, emotions, memories, images that go along with that, with it, that give us a sense of what it is that's being held onto. It may be very clear that some uh, uh, dense, hot, painful feeling shows up in meditation. And I really attend to it. I notice that. I may notice that there's a lot of sadness that goes with it. And that there's a memory, an image, and a story of something that happened to me that that sadness is connected to. And the invitation of that, you don't need to push the story away or the image away, actually just to let it be there rather gently, rather respectfully. And yet to, be, to let the primary attention not be just retelling yourself the story and getting re-caught up in the drama of what happened. But actually letting the emotions and the images have their, be digested. Letting them be digested through the willingness to abide, through the feeling it through letting the heat or whatever the energetic movement or energetic unwinding is that's happening, letting it ha- find its path, letting it find its movement, letting it have its digestion. So sometimes, maybe sadness or grief or anger or uh, whatever, may have specific images and memories that go with it. And yet sometimes it may not. Sometimes we might just not know what it is that's getting digested. But the fact that it has a a heat and density to it, and the fact of uh, the the tendency to fuss with it, strategize around it, push against it, etc., is suggestive of the fact that it's worth attending to worth cultivating those qualities with, worth feeling for how I can find a way to be spacious, gentle, non-reactive, allowing. And as I say, if in some moments we can't find the space to do that, okay, change your posture, move, redirect your attention to something more soothing. 
and you can come back to it. It's extraordinary how we can come back to it, and it may be six months later. You may and you and you pick up right where you left off. And might be sitting in a different way, the posture might be different, the uh, state of health might be different, uh, etc. And yet, oh, the same recognition of the same kind of energetic patterning, the same density, the same heat. So part of that gentleness might mean, okay, cooling out if it feels like it's too much. And then coming back, coming back again, coming back again. Sometimes, as I say, we speak about purification, we get these, these ideas of aiming at some kind of purity. Maybe it's worth stating unequivocally, there's no such thing as purity. Purity doesn't exist. At least not in the way that we usually conceive of it. And the, the conceptions of it seem to get us into a lot of uh, tricky territory, cause more harm than good. Ideas of moral purity. And for example, the Catholic Church, which holds up all kinds of ideas of moral purity. And then you see what, the, what often some kind of repression that goes on in the name of moral purity. And I don't, you know, I don't have to tell you about the various, all the, the abuse, particularly the sexual abuse of boys within the Catholic Church and from priests, etc. Moral purity giving us some, some ideas of moral purity, giving us some sense that there's some kind of correct moral world that we should inhabit where certain uh, impulses wouldn't arrive, that would arise, and then we'd be pure. Hoping for some sense of purity as a way to kind of lift out of the messy bodily life that we have. I remember hearing Ramdas speak once, and him saying that after... 40 years of meditation and yoga and fasting and psychotherapy and uh, psychedelic drugs and every kind of uh, uh, different ways of exploring consciousness and life. He says, after all of that, I don't think I've gotten rid of a single one of my neuroses. <laughs> like, really? And he says, the difference is, they're just not the monsters they used to be. As I see them come along, I say, oh, hi. And the example he gives, oh, hi, sexual perversity. (laughs) Not some idea that some thoughts shouldn't happen. We might be sitting here looking like a good meditator, but there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on there. Lustful thoughts, revengeful thoughts, Violent thoughts, mean-spirited thoughts, all kinds of thoughts. That's okay. We're not aiming for purity. What we're doing is creating some space around thought life. 
some gentleness with thought life. And the irony is the more space there is, the more willing we are to, to allow whatever shows up here to have its life, the less compelled we are to do anything with it. So then that uh, bizarre sexual thought or that angry, vengeful thought that arises, it's like, wow, really? Interesting. <laughs> and gone. Whereas the more we have some idea of what should or shouldn't arise in our mind, the more we have some idea of purity, the more we tend to make much of difficult thoughts when they're there. Sometimes we have, we have a lot of ideas in spiritual scenes. Buddhism, my goodness, full of it. Ideas of traditional purity. The, a pure tradition, that my tradition is pure. My teacher is pure. My lineage is pure. My lineage goes all the way back in an... This is the usual claim. And it's, there isn't a single actual historical evidence of it. My lineage goes all the way back. My teacher to his teacher to... It's usually his, his lots of his hymns in it. His teacher to his teacher to his teacher, All the way back to the Buddha. And some claim for purity. And the kind of the, the dogma and the schisms, etc., that arise around that. I might talk a little more about lineage tomorrow, but it won't be in terms of purity. Sometimes we can get obsessive around purity in terms of uh, health or diet. It seems to be a, a, a kind of, uh, it's got a lot of cultural currency actually uh, for us. And some idea of achieving some kind of optimum condition. Human life is a pretty amazing condition as it is, but it's not headed for optimizing. It's headed for decay. It just is. And it's, you know, it's already, just by the time we've been sitting here listening to me, it's been decaying. <laughs> and that's going to carry on. That might sound a little <laughs> miserable, but actually it's very relieving. It's not my job to get this into some kind of optimum condition. It's my, much more my job to care for this so that it can decay graciously. And it makes me think of Ramdas again. And so same, same talk, I think, when I was listening to him. He was, he'd been noticing some uh, TV advertisement for a cream that one could put on one's hands to, which would take away the aging spots that appear on hands. And the advert said, some people call these aging spots. I call them ugly. And then, <laughs> and then the, the advert for the cream that you could put on to stop them. Ramda says, some people call these ugly. I call them aging spots. <laughs> and we can also easily get into... Um, 
sometimes a sense of purity in terms of dharma practice. Some idea that, that my practice will make me pure. And, and that somehow I'll be protected through my practice. That somehow, if I practice well, or if I was practicing well, then I would somehow be protected as if the laws of nature wouldn't really apply to me. And as if somehow, and then we're surprised when people that we may revere or respect, uh, when it turns out that they're subject to the laws of nature. When they get sick, or they have an injury, or an accident. And there's some kind of uh, magical thinking that easily goes along with our practice. Dharma practice doesn't protect us from being subject to the laws of nature. It gives us uh, a m- more a kind of uh, a fluidity and a spaciousness and a freedom with which to navigate the impact of life on us. Well, now I wanted to speak about karma, and I'm noticing that it's already 5.30. And I'm not sure I can do it justice in uh, a few words. So maybe I'm going to leave it there rather than try to squeeze a lot into a few moments. And um, maybe there'll be time to come back to it, either this evening or some point tomorrow. So, just have to rely on my practice to let go of uh, mm, the extra pieces I wanted to add in. And really then to offer these reflections in the spirit of an encouragement to see the goodness in your practice. See the, the courage, the steadiness, the sincerity that it takes to be willing to abide with. This is the way our life gets clarified. like ghee. When ghee is warmed, it has this very exquisite kind of golden glow to it. And strangely enough, the more our heart feels clarified, very often the felt sense of a clarified heart, where some qualities of spaciousness and gentleness and intimacy are alive. The feeling of that is very much a golden glow. So, may you develop kanti and increasingly be willing to hang out gently with your experience, particularly when it's difficult. 
may we all know the golden glow of an increasingly clarified heart. Okay. Please enjoy your supper. See you at seven o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.